Hello, I'm Liv Bolton and you're listening to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire you to make the outdoors a bigger part of your life. I'm walking in my local woods under the five big redwood trees that I love looking up at and thinking about what they've seen over hundreds of years. It's only 10 minute walk from my house and nothing extraordinary, but it always makes me feel good when I come here. Maybe you have a local spot that does that for you too. Anyway, I also wanted to get outside today to record a special episode because it's five years since the Outdoors Fix podcast started. And I wanted to say a big thank you to all of you for listening. I remember posting that first episode on the 10th of February, 2019, a very gray drizzly day and afterwards going on a long walk on the Capital Ring route in London to distract myself and shake off the nerves. It had taken me weeks to make the episode around my job, a lot of sweating over the recording equipment, and I didn't know whether anyone other than my family would listen to it. But ever since my 10-week hike on the Te Arua Trail in New Zealand after burning out, and how much better the outdoors had made me feel, I'd wanted to learn from the people who knew more about it than me, and share their knowledge. I hope that perhaps the podcast could help us help each other to get outside and experience nature's power more often. Via 50 plus conversations and episodes recorded all over the British countryside, I've learned so much about the outdoors and met many wonderful people and listeners. I also hope you might have taken away something too. So to celebrate this milestone, I've got something a little different for you. I've gone back and picked some of my favourite moments from the Outdoors Fix recordings and I wanted to share them with you. I've loved speaking to every single one of my guests, but these are some of the snippets that have had the biggest impact on me and helped me make the outdoors a bigger part of my life. I hope you enjoy them. We're starting with my conversation with adventurer and outdoors writer James Forrest that took place on a hill overlooking Kendall in Cumbria. This was the chat where some llamas were casually led past us on the hill while we were recording. So random. James's episode was the first in series one and I loved hearing his strategy for how to make an adventurous life a real possibility. So my year out was this kind of hedonistic, Um, 12 months of being able to do whatever I wanted and um, pursue my passions and not have any real adult responsibilities and it felt amazing Um, but I had a lot of time to think about things during those 12 months as well and um, certainly towards the end of it I was really meditating on and thinking very deeply about how I can try and make this adventurous life more sustainable. I was able to have that 12 months off because I spent a decade of saving up money so I blew a load of money in 12 months obviously to go traveling. Then I was trying to kind of figure out how I can live more adventurously in a sustainable manner and so I thought about a few different things. I thought about trying to move somewhere that's more adventurous so if you live somewhere more adventurous then you can access adventure more easily. Yeah. Uh, so if you're living in Birmingham I mean that I lived most of my life in Birmingham, it was all good, but it took me three, four hours to drive up to the Lake District, so the place that I love more than anywhere else in the world. So that, that's a barrier to adventure, it's a long way away. So I wanted to try and move and live somewhere adventurous. Then my second plan was to try and get a more adventurous job if possible, uh, something that as part of the job it is adventurous, perhaps you're outdoors or you're doing adventurous activities. And thirdly, my idea was to um, work less, basically, which sounds funny, <laughs> but, um, um, but if you're in a full-time job and you're sat behind a desk for 40 hours every week, then that just inevitably restricts you from accessing adventure or spending time outdoors. So I wanted to try and get a part-time job if I could to try and give me extra time for adventure. So if I could manage to maybe work four days a week rather than five days a week, then suddenly I've freed up 50 days a year that I can dedicate for, for, for an adventure. I used those few different strategies. I moved to the Lake District, so I was close to adventure. I um, got a job that was more outdoorsy. What and, was that? Um, so that was work. I was kind of doing two things. I worked for um, Fixer Fells, which is a project that repairs the paths of the Lake District mountains. I was office-based, but I managed to get out and about quite a lot in my everyday job. And then I was slowly building up work as a freelance writer, writing for magazines about the outdoors. 
which was a very outdoorsy role. And then, as I said, I was working uh, part-time. So across those two jobs, on average, I was working four days a week. So I'd freed up an extra day a week for adventure. So those kind of three things that I think anyone could do, they're hopefully quite little practical changes to your life that can enable you to live more adventurously. So then you had this sort of extra 50 days a year, and then you were like, what adventure do I want to go on? So what was your first big adventure? Exactly. Well, I mean, I started off by just using these extra days just for extra little weekend trips and extra little days out here and there, which was really, really nice. Um, But having spent that year in 2016, traveling the world and then working on this farm, I, I had this real longing to go on another big grand adventure. I wanted to do something really epic, thinking about it I was trying to come up with ideas and then I stumbled across these two books that I had at home Um, they're called The Mountains of England and Wales by John and Anne Nuttall and they list these 446 mountains across the two countries that are over 2,000 feet high and and then I just thought actually you know maybe I've got three days off a week every week including a weekend Um, maybe would over six months would I be able to walk all of these it would be lots of small little trips but um, if I combine them all together and had this overarching mission maybe I can uh, climb all of them in six months in the kind of spring summer time the window of best weather and and yeah that was just an idea that kind of sprouted in my mind and then I ran with it and that was my big adventure I feel so so happy I you know my old life it wasn't terrible but I knew kind of deep down in my heart that I wasn't happy in that that I was a bit fed up it didn't feel right for me and there was hundreds of reasons not to change my life and I feel like I could have quite easily still be stuck in that old existence but I just feel so happy that um, I've made those changes that I've chosen to live more adventurously I've had amazing experiences and I'm just so much happier for it I'm a much more content and happy person in everyday life and just wake up every morning um, in the Lake District kind of looking forward to the day ahead knowing that I'm where I want to be in the world and that feels great and I think the kind of most powerful thing is that it you know there's nothing really special about me that enabled me to do it that I think that anyone can change their life or anyone can choose to live more adventurously if I could do it I really think that all of the listeners here could do the same it's just having a little bit of courage to um, go against the grain and make that decision to to go down that path and it often feels scary at first but it really isn't once you do it and I'm sure people won't regret it um, I certainly haven't I thought there were so many good tips there from James a few months later, I got to go to the Lake District and go swimming in Crummock water with Susanna Cruikshank who is a wild swimming guide It was a magical day and I learned so much about swimming in lakes and cold water and why it can feel so good. So, do I just... (laughs) Well, don't jump in, that's the main thing. Um, If you can sort of lower yourself down, it's a little bit slippy on this rock. Um, Ooh, it is a bit chilly. (laughs) It is a bit chilly. So it is a little bit rocky and it's got a it's actually not the coldest I've ever been. No. So, no. Oh. I imagine the waterfalls have been quite cold because they're coming straight from the mountain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to get a bit deeper, yeah. a little bit silky. Um, Squash yourself, get a bit in the chest because you're going to get wet anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you can really take some water on yourself, that, that, I've had someone just go like this before and I'm like, no, you've got to properly get some water on you. Yeah. Um, I'll try not to scream. <laughs> and then when you take your first. Um, when you first stroke out like this, nice deep breath out. Deep breath out, yeah. Okay. So you don't want to go <gasps> when you're at this level. So <laughs> and then just keep focusing on that nice deep breath out <laughs> until it passes. <laughs> oh, this <feels> amazing. <laughs> And the noises of the water as well. Because mm. you can't hear anything else, can you? No. Just the waterfalls around us, and that's about it. You might be able to get your feet down now. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yep. <laughs> wow. It's amazing. 
So we've just come out of the water after about we were about ten minutes in the water. Then, yeah, just we? about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it was amazing. <laughs> that felt incredible. Mm. I mean, it felt really obviously very cold when you got in, but yeah. the way your body warms up is yeah. quite amazing. It cools down. Well, yeah, it, it cools down. <laughs> yeah, as you sort of you get you become acclimatized to the water. Um, so I, I prefer to say that you cool down to it rather than you warm up. <laughs> yeah, and you gave me a good tip to breathe out yeah. as I was immersing yeah. myself yeah so as you move off i tried to get people in slowly so as we walked in we went into about um just over stomach depth and then a little bit further a little bit further until you were going to have to swim and at that point you know then you're not having this big plunge you just sort of move off gently mm. and a nice deep breath out to avoid you breathing in as you get level with the water um and just it just helps and then you're focusing on getting your breathing right and then all of a sudden you realize that you're in and you're swimming and the cold's less of an issue yeah. <laughs> yeah and and one thing we i thought when we were going out there and you picked up as well is the, the perspective yeah when you're swimming and you see yeah. these mountains around you from the perspective of the water that's yeah. incredible it is they look absolutely they look so different and one of my favorite mountains to swim under is Grassmore, and from a lot of places um it looks just like this big mass of rock when you're in the water it becomes like a ch like a child's drawing of a mountain with a really pointy top and and it's quite special because I've never seen a picture of it the way that it looks to me from the water and I just I, I love the view and just to look up at them and yeah you do you see them with a different pair of eyes but also I remember walks that I've been on when I'm looking at them so I might not have been up some of them for several years but when I'm in the water I can sort of gaze up and and it's like I was walking on them yesterday oh wonderful <laughs> that was a really amazing experience Good. Susanna so thank you I love my swim with Susanna she has lots of tips about safety in the water on her Susanna Swims website, so make sure to check those out. Or well, there's also advice on the Outdoor Swimming Society website. Another big highlight from my early recordings was walking up to Easdale Tarn in the Lake District with Harrison Ward, who's also known as Fell Foodie due to his cooking in the hills. Harrison knocked off a delicious chicken stew by the side of the tarn for me. He credits the outdoors with helping him transform his life after a period of alcoholism and depression. I found hearing that journey incredibly moving and it showed just what a powerful impact getting outside can have on lives. Here he is telling me about what happened after he'd had a breakdown in York and a move back to Brampton near Carlisle to try and get his life back on track. One of my closest friends, Ryan, again was somebody else who came, was quickly, quickly there to support me, turned up on my doorstep about two weeks into coming back and said, right, look, you're back now, let's get you out. He's really got into hiking in the lakes since he'd, since he'd started uh, working in the lakes because originally he was always in cafes and pubs like me, that's how I met him. Whilst he'd been in that environment, he'd, he'd bought himself a pair of boots and he started enjoying the fells. Now, this was quite alien to me, you know, I'd, though I'd lived on the doorstep to this. I mean, I, I'd potted around the towns, you know, I'd gone for, gone for tea and cake, I guess, or some, some of the, the low-level walks, you know, of your mum sort of thing, but I'd, I'd, not, I'd not gone up walking. So I remember looking around half the time and going, oh, they're just hills, what's the appeal there? Anyway, he picked me up one day and so we're going hiking, we're going up Blencathra. I sort of gathered together my clothes, and I've got no gear at this point either, I'm not into this scene, so I think I picked up a jumper, a woolly jumper I had from Debenhams, I put that on, I put on an old pair of swimming shorts that I had, and put my Lonsdale trainers on with yeah. probably, the, the, well, less gripped than a pair of bowling shoes, so we say. <laughs> and I turned up, and there I was with my old school rucksack on my back, going ready for this hike. And he picked me up and he said, you're not wearing them. And I said, well, it's all I've got. So we set off to the lakes anyway from my house in North Cumbria and uh, on the way of course we swing by uh, sort of a, a go outdoors outlet sort of in Penrith and uh, he takes me in there picks up a pair of boots and says what's your size I'm getting you these boots um, and again I didn't have I didn't have pennies to my name at this point you know again I'd, I'd, I'd come back I'd, I'd whittle all my all my money down my neck or, or paying off my last bits of my rent from this house after leaving this job I had nothing really it was, it was, it was a big moment that really he, he, he bought this, this pair of boots for me and then we drove down to the car park of Blencathra and set off a bit. It was really hard. I mean, it was three weeks for me. I'm really unfit. I'm still detoxing from alcohol. Yeah. I've not had a smoke in three weeks. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm in hot flushes all the time. This sort of thing. My head's pounding. You know, I've still got the shakes sort of in my hands. All sorts. Of, I'm, 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 I don't know what fair of mind I mean. You know, I'm still sort of completely heartbroken from losing this relationship, and next week I'm getting dragged up these sort of these these mountains, and. And we got up, and it, and it was slow, and it wasn't it wasn't anything pretty. Um, but he was there; he didn't rush off from me. He just took our time. We enjoyed the views, and I, 
I'd not really seen that sort of side before and I enjoyed looking down on sort of like the Keswick and that, seeing how to do it and water. And we got up it and we had, we got up to the summit and it was quite a proud moment. And we got up there and we went down again and he dropped me off at home and he went, right, we're doing Helvellyn next. So, okay, again, Helvellyn, I thought it sounded like a craft beer to me. So I'd, 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 I'd never even heard of it. And uh, that wasn't until the following week. And again, we went out again that second week, did the same thing, part two, off we went, up Helvellyn. And it was a glorious day the first time I went to Helvellyn. It was completely blue skies, not a cloud. And I remember getting to the top of there and it was fantastic. And, and I, that sort of moment there, I remember stood looking over and he actually got a picture of me there. I stood looking over, um, looking at the time below, looking at the striding edge. And, and it just sort of twigged something in me. I don't know what it was, but it, it almost, it almost felt like a, a little passion was being ignited here. You know, it's something that I'd not had before, but also something that, that related a lot to what I was going through at the time. Because it, 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 it was an uphill struggle, if you like, I guess no pun intended, what, what I was doing. Uh, completely changing my life, completely taking a right turn from everything I was doing before. You know, one minute, you know, I'm spending every night sat on a chair in a pub, popping out every 20 minutes for a smoke. And next minute, here I am trying to change all this and walking up sort of hills as well. So it was almost like a bit of a physical manifestation of what I was going through as a person. And we continued from there. So we just, so it was Belen Caffer the first week, Helvel in the second week. We did Scarfell Pike the third week. So I'd already done three sort of quite substantial heights there in the first few weeks of doing nothing. And, and by this point, I, I was hooked. I was there. It was, a new, it was a new addiction for me. I, I was onto it. Those mountains really kicked off an outdoors journey for Harrison. I know many of you follow him and will have seen he's just published a book, a cookout, all about his outdoors adventures and favourite recipes to cook when you're in the hills. So lovely to hear how much the outdoors has helped him. Who first inspired you to start hiking or camping or paddleboarding? Renny Yassine was one of my favourite interviewees and she's someone who's inspired hundreds of young people to experience the outdoors and feel a sense of belonging there. She's a youth and community worker and outdoors instructor for Lindley Educational Trust and she told me how she got into that role when we had a chat sitting on an outwards bound course near Castleton in the Peak District. I grew up, it was quite a sheltered upbringing I think, so you know I was born in Ashton and my outdoor experience as a child was we'd play on the streets till the street lamps came on and we knew that was time to come in and you know we'd play on our scooters and we'd play with the neighbours and you know that's that was my childhood which was amazing but it was never countryside it was never climbing it was never any of that stuff that I do now and you know the years went by and I actually went to a boarding school in my teenage mm. years so you know I didn't really get the teenage experience that not like you would get generally so then I came back and I think, well, I don't, don't think I know I was very stroppy. Had re I had a bad attitude and a potty mouth and I'm much better at controlling it now. But I can't, you know. I found out about a local youth club that was in St. Peter's and it was called St. Peter's Youth. And some of my friends um, said, oh, Renna, come, let's go to youthy tonight. And I was like, mm, definitely not. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> like, I was like 16. So I just thought, no, that's definitely not for me. I'm a bit too old, I think. Um, so I just thought, no, I'll leave it. And then I saw Adnan, who was the youth worker. And I seen him once and he was just like, oh, Renna, do you know about the youth club? And I was like, yeah, I've heard, I've heard about it from a few few people because like I said Ashton's really small everyone knows mm. each other so they were like oh yeah I said yeah you know I've heard about it but um I don't think it's for me and do you know what he used to text me every day wow. come to youth club come to youth club come to youth club and it was a seven night a week provision at that time so you know there's loads of funding that was pumped into Ashton and the youth project was amazing so eventually I thought do you know what I'll go yeah so when and it was freaking amazing <laughs> honestly they had oh I've not it was such a unique youth club, so they did climbing trips every week. Wow. We used to do weekly climbing trips to the outdoor centre, Manchester Climbing Centre. We, they did all sorts, they did camping, they did, you know, um, climbing, canoeing, all of that stuff that we do now, they did it back then. And I was just like, what kind of youth club is this? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so I attended that youth club and I attended all the outdoor stuff. And that was like my first exposure to the outdoors when I was 16, basically, 10 years ago. Well, 11 now. So you'd gone to this youth club not really knowing what to expect. No. And then you got to do all of these amazing outdoor activities. Yeah. But your first time in the yeah. outdoors and maybe going hiking or something, yeah. did, did you kind of get addicted to it straight away? Did you love it or, or was it... Hell no. Really? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my gosh. So the first walking experience in the countryside was an opportunity arose to go to Tubcal, right? So in to, Morocco? In Morocco to wow. climb the highest Atlas mountain. And me and my friends were proper hyped about it. We were like, let's apply for it. So there was an interview process and everything, which was fab. We was like, yeah, let's do this, let's do this. So obviously we had to do some physical training as well. Yeah. We got picked, me and there was like six other others. Pretty much, there was pretty much all from the same background as myself. And so our first, well, my first countryside walk was a little walk in a place called Dove Stones, which is not far from where I am. It's about half an hour, I'd say. It's basically a really small hill, yeah. <laughs> honestly. And um, I really struggled. I really struggled. I had centre boots on, so my boots rubbed against the back of my feet. I got mm. blisters. I that hated it. I was hot. I was cold. I was moaning. I swore, you know, like I talked about, you know, bad attitude. And I swore at Adnan, who was my youth worker, all the way up. And I'm not proud of that. I, and I do apologise to him all the time. I'm so sorry, that wasn't me. It was just emotions talking. And, you know, I got to the top of Dove Stones and I threw my boots at him. Yeah. Wow. I said to him, I'm not coming to Morocco. I said to the rest of the group, you know, I love you all. You're my mates. You look, carry on. I'm not coming to Morocco. Yeah. I don't think. And I, I remember saying, I don't think my Pakistani body is made for these hills. And then actually thinking about it now, that was like the worst thing I could have said because actually my pa Pakistani body is definitely made to do stuff <laughs> like this. I just hated it, to be honest. But do you know what? It was, I was well out of my depth. I was well out of my comfort zone. I'd never been up a hill before. Never had walking boots on my feet before. So um, Adnan used his reverse psychology on me and he was like, do you know, I completely get it. If you don't want to come to Morocco, just put your boots on. Let's get back down. Ring me in a couple of days. If you don't want to come to Morocco, it's fine. So I said, all right, fine. Well, I'm not coming anyway, I told you. <laughs> so anyway, I got my boots back on reluctantly. I couldn't get back to the car park fast enough, to be honest. How did you change your mind? I don't know. <laughs> I rang him the next day. I go, so where are we going next? He was like, hey, what do you mean? I thought, I, thought, I thought you didn't want to. I mean, the only way I can describe it is something clicked in my head and in my heart. And I just thought, actually, that was pretty cool. That's like, so interesting, isn't it? How at the time you're like, this is the worst thing ever. And then it just feels amazing. It's a thing, isn't it, called type two fun, I think, yeah, I think where so. at the time it's just it's terrible. Dreadful. And then actually you reflect on it, you think that was pretty awesome. Yeah, I don't know if it was because maybe we were the only, you know, people from my background that I saw up on the hills, or was it the fact that I struggled so much, but I still did it and I, it was a sense of achievement and pride and all that. But I don't know, I think it was probably a combination of so many different factors that and Adnan says to me that it's because my friends were definitely going to Morocco so it was that peer thing you know mm. I thought if my friends are going I definitely want to go yeah. so it could have been a bit of that as well so this youth club and it, the outdoors activities that it offered you you got to go to Morocco I mean that is extraordinary <laughs> yeah I mean to think that my first experiences in the outdoors yeah I did these walks we did camping we went to Snowdon we did all that in prep to go to Morocco and that Mount was like Tubical. we we stayed there for two weeks we met some amazing people we ate some amazing food until date that was like probably the best experience of my life to be honest with you know people who come from the same background as me same you know same experiences same culture as me and we did this amazing thing and i'd never ever heard of people like me doing stuff like that to be honest but I just didn't know that a world like this existed to be honest what impact did it have on you as a child then? I mean, as a teenager? I don't know. I think it, it was, you know, like a new world. It was like new horizons, looking at it from a, the world from a different perspective. Like my family, some of my family think I'm so strange, honestly. Um, and the fact that I then started saying, can we go climbing? Mm. When's the next trip? When's this? When's that? I think, I don't know, it was just different perspectives. I think that's a big one for me. So you were obviously at that youth club yeah. all throughout your teenage yeah. years. But, and now where you're at now is you're working, basically doing what Adnan was doing yeah. for you. Yeah, so I came to the youth club. We went to Morocco. We did all this amazing stuff. And then austerity hit. So the funding cut and um, St. Peter's Youth no longer existed. They had to shut down an amazing youth project, oh. which impacted thousands and thousands of young people, to be honest over the years because that youth club was on was in Ashton for 13 years wow. and they had to shut down Just they didn't have funding to keep going so I mean there was a direct link between antisocial behavior and you know crime and the youth club shutting 
So Lindley came to Adnan at that point and said, here's a little bit of funding, go and pilot a project. So the Monday Night Youth Club started. So me, Nayab, Akib, all these, all of us guys who went to Morocco or used to attend the youth project started volunteering at this Monday night mm. session. And eventually I did start getting paid on the Monday night and mm. then I started volunteering. So then we ended up doing three nights. So it was the Monday night youth club, a Wednesday, which was like an outdoor pursuit session. And then a Friday, which is the football. So I volunteered on all of the sessions and I started getting paid on all the sessions. Then we started doing family residentials and weekend activity. And, and basically I attended all of the sessions and I just used to put myself forward for everything really. And then I got basically offered a full-time position from Lindley three years ago. Yeah. So essentially for nearly three years now, I've been managing Ashton Youth Club. I mean, that is so cool. What a story that you, you know, basically the youth club that you were at yourself, you now run, yeah. run the activities and help the kids. Yeah. That's awesome. I know. And I think for me, because I know how much of an impact it's had on my life to date, I, that's why it's so much, spe- so much more special for me because I am now facilitating, facilitating these experiences for other young people just like me. I could have spoken to Renna for hours. She's even taken some of her youth club groups on expeditions in the Cairngorms and canoeing adventures in Finland recently. There's been some pretty special places that I've been taken to by my guests to record the podcast over the years. One of my favourites was when I spoke to the author and shepherd James Rebanks on his farm in the Lake District, where he spent many years trying to make it a haven for wildlife. So what, what are we looking at? We're looking at... Um... The Lake District fells in the distance, so that's Great Dodd, the Dodd Scar running down the side. That's where my hefted sheep live. Uh, passing around, you can just about see Helvellyn through the clouds in the middle. Oh yes, amongst those sort of rainy clouds, because I mean it's pretty, pretty that, windy, stormy day, but that's right. of sunshine. So, so and we're not far from the farmhouse behind us, which is an old barn built in like 1860, 1870. And I, I'm lucky; I can sit on the if I sit on the far side of my kitchen table, I can see the the top of Helvellyn a lot of mornings, which is nice. Oh, wow. So we're sat in an old, um, what we would call a hoggist, uh, or a field house, which is a, basically a stone barn. And we're sat inside just under the arch near the, the coin stones. And out the window we're looking onto Little Melful and we're looking across one of our old hay meadows and down to the beck and some woodland and a pond in the distance. It's probably the coolest, one of the coolest locations I've ever recorded in. We're in the Matterdale Valley in the Lake District, um, quite near Oldswater. And in this barn you said there's a barn owl um, nest above us. That's right, uh, about 12 or 13 feet above my head on the on the beam is uh, an old shipping sort of shipping wooden box with a hole cut in in one end and yeah we have a family of barn owls that I, th- I think they have multiple roosts but this is one of their roosts and this year they got pushed out of the nest by some jackdaws that, that oh. hijacked it but last summer they reared two or three chicks and yeah they've been one of the best things about the changes we made to the farm is that the barn owls are really thriving just because there's more food there's more voles it's obvious that you completely love being here and this you know making this your life what are some of the special moments um sometimes it isn't the rarest things it's some there's some quite common nature things that i absolutely adore um i love swallows so the swallows coming back to my sheep shed every year just gives me a massive kick i i, I can my granddad was like this as well, and my dad to an extent. I can stand leaning over a gate and have a cup of coffee for 25 minutes, 30 minutes, just watch the swallows mm-hmm. coming in and out, and I think, do you know what, this is all right. This. Um, and there was one pair, one pair of swallows on our farm, maybe two, 20 years ago. Now we're up to about 20 plus pairs, just cause, partly because the cattle have come past, come back, partly because we're managing in a way that there's way more insect life. And partly because we built a modern sheep shed. Sometimes it isn't the, sometimes it isn't the cool nature thing you yeah. did, it's the, they just need somewhere to nest. Yeah. And we, we built a new sheep shed. It happens to be exactly what they need in exactly the right place. Um, yeah, but the barn owls coming back gives me a huge kick. And they came back as a result of fencing off some of the riverbanks and there were more voles suddenly. And then I have to say, I've got a real soft spot for otters. So we had an otter with two um, kits, isn't it? Otter yeah, kits, kits, yeah. yeah. I, I had an otter with two otter kits last year and I got within about 10 feet of them one day wow. by mistake. And that's cool. Was, things like that take your breath away and you think, there's enough room for me here for me and my sheep and an otter. Let's let's do the best we can, you know, to, to get along with each other. And sometimes I think I've come a long way, and in other ways I think not really. My granddad was pretty much like this. <laughs> it was such a privilege to walk around James's farm and record it in that barn. 
It also made for a much less windy episode. Throughout the years of recording, it's been a privilege when guests have felt comfortable to really open up with me and talk about some very difficult periods in their lives. It's also been wonderful to hear how the outdoors has brought them so much hope during these experiences. Here's Frankie Butler, who had to rely on a wheelchair following a catastrophic hockey injury to her leg and subsequent experience of complex regional pain syndrome. So if you look back on the journey that you've been in since your injury, how would you sum up the impact of the outdoors on you? I don't think I'd be here today if I didn't have the outdoors. And that's, that's being truly honest. Um, the outdoors is so, so important. And I have to get outside every day, no matter whether it's pissing with rain or it's beautiful baking hot sunshine. I am like a dog that needs to be walked. <laughs> I, I need it and without that, without that freedom, and just without the, f the amazing variety of nature, without, without that, I'd, I don't think I'd, I really don't think I'd be here today. When you're in so much pain, your life can become so monotonous. You do the same thing every day, you take the same medication, you're only able to do certain stuff, you feel sick all day from the pain, you can't wear certain clothes, all of that. And when I'm outside, I'm just me. I'm not Frankie with CRPS, I'm not Frankie the ex-hockey player, I'm just me and I'm enjoying I'm enjoying it just as everyone else and I get to share that experience because I, I do feel I'm isolated from so many things I used to be a part of but the one thing I'm not isolated from is the outdoors. It's been here for me ever since I could walk <laughs> when I was little and I very much hope it will be here for me in the future and it's just such an important part of my recovery and it will be ongoing because this recovery process has been two and a half years already and it's looking like it's going to be you know a very very long time and I'm I very much hope one day I'll be able to walk again I might not um, but I know I have the outdoors to enjoy and I know that I'm capable of so much on my wheelchair and I've been able to challenge myself on the out in the outdoors. I go on difficult trails that are made for me by nature. And as a geologist, that's extremely exciting. Um, and yeah, I need the challenges. That's a very long answer to the question, but genuinely, like, I don't think I'd be here today without it. I was very grateful to Frankie for feeling that she could share that with me. We recorded it by the Jubilee River in Berkshire. You probably heard the geese in the background there and it was such a beautiful spot. Have you ever been tempted to change your career to something based in the outdoors or even volunteer for an outdoors organisation? What about becoming a mountain rescue volunteer? I went to Snowdonia in 2021 to chat to Helen Isles, who's a teacher and mountain leader, but also a mountain rescue volunteer for South Snowdonia Search and Rescue Team. She told me what it involves. Our patch covers the Rhinogith Mountains um, and they are the lesser known in Snowdonia but they're very, very remote. They, we have uh, quite a lot of experienced walkers here and so usually what we find is a lot of our call-outs are to experienced people that have had an accident mm. and it happens, you know, people do have accidents. It's, it's not through ignorance or... They usually have all the equipment but they've had an accident. Um, what happens then is if they're lucky enough to have phone signal, then they can phone 999 and then it gets sent through. We actually work as part of North Wales Police. So North Wales Police con contact us and then we have a structure that the information is passed down to the team. We have a base in Transfernith where all the equipment's kept and then we can move out from there and deploy from there. Sometimes, um, you, you've seen how remote this area is, and I think our nearest hospital is 60 miles away. Wow. So you can imagine that resources are quite scarce. And so we're very, very reliant on helicopters here as well. And we have the amazing 936, Rescue 936 helicopter. 
if the weather's good, they will come in and help us as well. And they will help us sometimes move kit up to the top of a mountain, move people up to the top of a mountain, or they will assist us and get a casualty to hospital quite quickly. And so we're indebted to them. Such an important part of the rescue service around here. Do you think in terms of the rescues you've had to do, is it that you have to carry the stretchers down? Uh, is it that you have to administer first aid? What are your tasks when you get to the casualty? Um, varied, totally varied from anaphylactic shocks on tops of mountains to heart attacks, uh, cardiac arrests, um, to slips, trips, falls. Um, I seem to, personally I seem to attract a lot of um, broken femurs, broken pelvises, wow. um, just accidents that have happened on top of the mountains. Then of course, uh, so what? for example, I'll, I'll talk you mm. through a, a shout. We had a gentleman who literally just stood on a rock and slipped off the rock and fell very heavily on his um, bottom and broke the top off his femur and of course then you're in a very difficult situation he can't move because he's in so much pain he it took us probably about an hour and a half to get the stretcher and the equipment up there uh, helicopter was unavailable because of the cloud level was so low um, we then um, administered first aid pain relief and then we had to stretch him out of there we have a stretcher system with a wheel now which is much much oh, it's incredible and it just makes it a lot easier but saying that it still took a team of probably about 12 to 14 people moving in and out of the stretcher to carry him down the mountain um, and then to get him to the ambulance and you're talking probably about four or five hours in a situation like that so it's a lot of manpower a lot of time um, and a lot of coordination um, but the training that you get in mountain rescue is brilliant in that you know which role you're in and we all work as a team team spirit is essential if you wanted to become a volunteer mm -hmm. do you have to already have some qualifications I mean I mean obviously you have the mountain leader qualification mm -hmm. and you have now got first aid but how would you start being a volunteer? What would you need? Uh, get in touch, get in touch with us. Um, I know that some mountain rescue teams uh, require a minimum qualification. Uh, we don't have that luxury. We, we're happy to see lots of people. Um, for us, it's we're not as technical, so we're not climbers, we're not um, specific skills, but an interest in the mountain, a general level of fitness, if you can come to the table with mountain leader that would be amazing or if you could come with some kind of skill such as doctor or navigation or we will accept you you know with with open arms <laughs> with open arms yeah i've got so much admiration for the mountain rescue teams it was fascinating to hear more about how they work there are so many wonderful communities in the outdoors that help people realize that it's a place for them too they also give people the confidence to spend time in nature safely and help them meet like-minded people to go on adventures with. So I love chatting with Katie O'Neill Gutierrez, the founder of the parent and baby walking community, Blaze Trails. There are now dozens of Blaze Trails walking groups all over the UK. On a walk in the Chilterns, Katie told me how she started the group after the birth of her daughter, but more importantly, why she wanted to set it up. It had been quite a sort of traumatic birth. I was, I was so, I, I, I think I almost had this like real, desire to like heal myself like I was I maybe I couldn't even explain I was like I just need to be outdoors where I feel safe and happy and soothed um and it kind of was part of processing maybe like everything that happened I don't know I just had this urge I was like I need to get outside of these mm, walls mm. and you are very home-based you know even if you are you want to be the most active person having a baby like you are at home more and you need to be and you need to figure out what's going on and so yeah I, it was more of a like right as soon as we're ready let's go and do this thing for us and it, and it really helped I was going to say well, yeah. how did it make you feel afterwards did, I mean it may not have yeah. been a revelation but it, it you know did it definitely have an impact yeah definitely definitely like and it meant we then got out every day so it was you know not not in we were living in Kensal Green and there were some really nice parks we'd go to but we'd I had this great group of friends um, through MCT and as we all got a little bit more confident we'd start going walking together in different places and mm. That was a very early iteration of Blaze Trails. Um, and then, yeah, we just found that we'd, we'd go out and it was, the babies loved it. Um, you know, a lot of chat amongst new parents is about, how's your baby sleeping? And 
sometimes you're like, I don't want to talk about baby sleep anymore. I don't, you know, can we talk about anything else? Um, but, you know, the, the babies, they, you know, almost invariably would sleep or they'd be so calm when they're outside. So you were like, oh, this is way more comfortable than sitting in a coffee shop because the babies are relaxed and we can have a conversation. We can talk about what on earth has just happened to us and like, you know, this new journey we're on. Um, so yeah, I think we'd all get home kind of refreshed and feeling just that bit more able to cope with yeah. the busy indoor stuff. So it sounds like you sort of started this own little walking group. You didn't join another one. Is that because mm-hmm. you didn't see any available walking mm-hmm. groups for you to join? Is that why? Exactly, yeah. So once I'd sort of figured out that I liked walking, and I was like, right, well, I'm, I've got this time stretching ahead of me. Um, I just Googled. I was like, baby walking group near me or whatever. And, you know, all the different combinations of stuff you put in. And I just couldn't find anything. Um, there were some sort of more traditional walking groups, um, which are brilliant. And, you know, they're great. But for I knew that I needed to be able to stop regularly to change my baby. And I probably wanted to go with people that, also had babies that kind of understood so I just started organizing uh, walks with this group of friends I had and um, we started getting kind of more confident and going further afield and we'd get on the train or we'd get in the car and we'd come out to the Chilterns and stuff like that Um, and then yeah before we know it we had people coming along that I didn't know they were sort of friends of friends and oh Katie's doing a walk like this day come along and yeah and it grew and then I think I was like well actually there seems to be something here like we all seem to be really enjoying it the babies are loving it and sort of there seems to be a bit of a need and um so yeah I decided to have a go and set up a walking group and then it just exploded suddenly like there were all these people that were like oh walking with your baby it's a thing like we can do it it's safe and it's with a community that kind of get you know we're all the same so So you've tapped into something that people obviously really realized they needed yeah I think so and I think uh, I then realised that, you know, there were my reasons for doing it and then people would come along and they would talk about their own stories. And, you know, we had similarities, but of course everyone has a different journey through life anyway. And then you throw in having a baby. Everyone's had different sort of birth experiences, which are hugely like transitional. You know, they really kind of change or affect who you are in that period of your life Um, and just your adjustment to new parenthood. So we were all very different, but we were all getting similar types of things out of the walks you know we were all finding some headspace for ourselves we were also having the chance to talk with you know with other people and getting that peer support um and then yeah and then people were sort of would then talk about oh i'm i feel like a good parent because i've brought my baby out into nature and my baby's calm and happy and as the, the kids would get older you know they'd be so confident just toddling off into the undergrowth and you know then seeing your children and the benefits for them yeah, because it can be really hard sometimes knowing that you're doing the right thing as a parent and you'd be like, well, they're having a great time. This is good for them. I'm doing something good. Katie O'Neill Gutierrez, the founder of Blaze Trails there. There are so many people doing brilliant things to increase access in the outdoors, but there is still a way to go. When I spoke to mountain leader Carla Corey on a very sunny day in Dagenham Park in London, she highlighted just some of the problems and her work to try and improve the diversity of the outdoors. I came across Rianne from Black Girls Hike. Yeah. And um, the founder. Yeah, they were looking for a black mountain leader, black female mountain leader, and there isn't many of them. So, <laughs> were you telling me that you're only one of two female black mountain leaders yeah, in the country? Yeah. So uh, the the statistics, uh, you know, are quite shocking, really. Yeah. I asked for some data from mountain training, and uh, so since the inception of the award in the 60s, there's been about 25,000 people, roughly, that have uh, achieved the Summer Mountain Leader Award. Uh, of those, uh, approximately like 20 just over 20,000 men and 5,000 women so uh, clearly a a male dominated Mm. ward Um, and out of that in the recorded data um, there are only two black female mountain leaders one of them one is me wow yeah so um, yeah (laughs) quite quite shocking I mean there may be others I don't know if there are any others that are out there I would love to meet them (laughs) I really would love to meet them and in terms of like winter mountain leaders uh, at the moment again based on the the latest data um, there are no black male or female 
winter mountain leaders recorded um, that people have to volunteer that information so there, right. there may well be um, others you know, but again I don't I don't know it's still an incredibly incredibly small, small number. number yeah yeah, and, and so Rianne reached out to you. Yeah, so she re reached out to me as a, a black mountain leader to, to see if there's if we could work together. And uh, so I've worked with with them and uh, some of their groups uh, leading some of their hikes. And more recently, I uh, they've become a mountain uh, training provider for uh, some mountain training approved courses. So Hiller Mountain Skills. So I'm the course director. Uh, for those and I've been running those courses and it's been an absolute joy to um, to uh, work with women that are really keen and eager to develop their personal skills, learn to navigate, use map and compass, learn to, to, to be safe in the, the hill and mountains and give them confidence to be able to go away and to, to, to do more of that themselves. Well, it's fantastic that you're doing that and you know that there's so many, hopefully, there'll be so many more women like you, going through and becoming mountain that's, leaders. That's the aim, that, yeah. that, that is the aim. Yeah, I don't want to be one of two black women mountain leaders no. in the UK, I want there to be to be lots. So yeah, I, I'm you know, really, really enjoying working with these women and if there's any way that I can help other black women that are, um, are, want, are thinking about that, that route to becoming qualified in the outdoors, then I, I would be more than happy to, to help anyone that wanted to. I love chatting to Carla, an absolute trailblazer. An obvious issue for many of us about wanting to get outdoors more is how to fit these adventures into our hectic lives with work, family and other commitments. That's why I wanted to chat to Vicky Balfour about her phrase, pockets of adventure. Vicky is a mountain biker and she's also the mum of Cece who has special needs. She told me where the idea for pockets of adventure came from when we stopped for a break on a cycle together in Kent. It was a brilliant phrase, I think, called pockets of adventure. Yes. I think it's amazing. And you, you talk about how you want to try and help people get pockets mm. of adventure within the boundaries of everyday life. Yes. So just talk to me a bit about where that came from and that idea and that how you're trying to sort of spread that you know, mm. thought. So I, obviously, I have a very restrictive in some ways lifestyle. Not as restrictive as some of my friends with children with needs, but we... For example, Cece has epilepsy, therefore we have to pack all her epilepsy medication when we go anywhere. So I, to in order to leave her and go and do something, and Al's job has got very fixed times and so on, and he works a lot. So actually, I basically I was I was seeing all these people going off and child-free people and people with older children or people neurotypical children going off and having these big adventures, and I was like, well, I can't do that, and I just thought I got. I just got really fed up and I thought, well, actually, what about if I create within my days those little feelings of adventure? So that even if, OK, I haven't been off and done that, I've actually got the double win because I've managed to feel like I've got lost and had a bit of adventure. Um, but I still got home in time for Cece coming back from Lisa or wherever. And it sort of and that felt to me like actually that was enough because I didn't want to live so I am lucky and I do plan trips and I've got sort of trips and adventures planned for next year but I can't psychologically I can't live from one trip to another because I'm very um, mortality is something that's very present when you live in special needs circles um, and yeah I mean, so, uh, two of Cece's friends have died within the last year and it's so yeah sorry. it's oh yeah. thank you it's it, it I it really surprised me how much and it sounds stupid I shouldn't be surprised but it 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 really affected us mm. and I just can't I cannot live my life waiting for something in six months time and yes I love looking forward to it but actually I have to live for every single day because you just don't know. You, you don't know. I mean, we're lucky Cece is strong and stable um, and there's no reason to question that. But it just, well, for any of us, you could get knocked down by a bus or whatever. It's, it's yeah. And so I wanted, yeah, so I just came up with this idea of, yeah, finding pockets of adventure. Just And often when you talk to people who go on these big adventures, Often it is about the people they're with or the environment they're in. And, I, and I, it hit me, it hit, it, it's always struck me that we take for granted the places we live. And actually, 
well even for you coming here from another part of the country you're like oh wow this is amazing this is lovely because it's different to where mm. you are but if we go into our environments and look at them with the eyes of somebody who's fresh to them you suddenly see so much more mm. um, and yeah and it's and I'm lucky I've got a lot of friends who sort of think the same way so it's sort of the idea of just going somewhere and taking a thermos and having a cup of tea or my friend Tara and I, when we go, we go to sort of locally to ride in Surrey. We take our sandwiches, we take a change of clothes, we always have a big thermos of tea and it just... And we gossip all the way there. We then ride, scare ourselves, challenge ourselves, have so much laughter. Then we get back to the van, we get changed, we have a cup of tea in the car park, <laughs> we eat our sandwiches and then we go home. And it's just... I was like, actually, do you know what? That's been as much of an adventure as anything I mean we haven't had so much hardship but if it's raining it can be miserable <laughs> but it's like but I've still managed to keep that within the confines of my everyday life mm. and that gives me uh, that gives me what I need to keep me going until I get to my next big big thing I think that's a brilliant mentality for yeah. of adventure yeah I think it's just I, I we we get given in life our hand and no amount of wishing will change it and you just got to find the positives. You just got to, because otherwise you're just going to be miserable. And there's no point being miserable in life. Pockets of adventure. I haven't forgotten that phrase. I hope you enjoyed those snippets from the episodes over the years. If you'd like to hear the full conversations or any of the other 50 plus episodes, just have a scroll through the Outdoors Fix back catalogue wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of the stories are also included in the Outdoors Fix book, which includes lots more tips and inspiration for outdoors adventures. It's available in bookshops, Amazon or the Vertebrate Publishing website. I think what I found most valuable from these past five years of making the podcast has actually been discovering something incredibly simple, that even just 10 minutes in nature can make things feel better. It's a tool that I wish I'd known about much, much earlier. I've also learned that the people who love the outdoors are some of the kindest, most generous and inspirational people I've met. So thank you for all of the support for the Outdoors Fix podcast since 2019 and to all of my wonderful guests. What a ride it's been. And I'm looking forward to sharing many more new episodes with you in 2024.